right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our church. Thankful to be able to share God's word and uh, to be able to worship with you, obviously. Uh, if you're new or if you're visiting, uh, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. And we want to, again, extend a warm welcome in this season where maybe some of you are checking out new churches or you're kind of seeing what's out there after this long season of being scattered in the pandemic, obviously. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're going straight into our series. Uh, last week, Pastor Tom started the series through the book of Nehemiah. I thought he did a great job setting the context and explaining why particularly uh, it's appropriate for our church in this season to go through this in this season of regathering and rebuilding in a sense. Uh, rebuilding a lot of what was there before COVID happened, but also rebuilding in the sense of I think there's a lot that has been lost uh, during this pandemic, spiritually speaking, practically speaking. Now, as a quick recap for us, either if you forgot or if it's your first time, Nehemiah is a book that revolves around, you guessed it, the character of Nehemiah, who we were introduced to last week in chapter 1. And the whole narrative of Nehemiah and the issue that kind of serves as what sets the events forward is the fact that, if you don't remember, this is a very sad and dark time in Israel's history as a nation. Because it's a sad and vulnerable time for them in the city of Jerusalem. The walls that protect the city. The walls at that time that every city needed to have to be secure and safe, they were destroyed and burned to the ground. So just picture what once used to serve as walls that would fence around their city, their rubble, their stones, there's burnt wood everywhere because they had been conquered. And this is significant, again, because walls, they're not just walls, they represent security, they represent safety, they represent protection, much like the doors and walls of our home would for ourselves. So for a city to not have walls meant you can't really move forward as a nation, as a people, because you can't establish stability. You're always anxious or fearful that someone's going to come and attack you. You can't really have a community or a culture that thrives and is established. And for Nehemiah, it was particularly devastating because Jerusalem was not just any city. It was where the people of God dwelt. Okay? If I can use kind of modern language, it's not just some random building, but it's like the church. That's how he viewed it using modern day terms. And so as we learned last week, what God does is he places this burden in Nehemiah's heart to do something. He says, hey, there's a situation going over there in Jerusalem where my people are dwelling and I'm placing this burden. And what Pastor Tom talked about last week, which I thought was so helpful, is that God uses people like Nehemiah and even people today that three things, that care about the things of God, which is becoming more and more rare in today's day and age, People who are saturated with the word of God, which is becoming even more rare in today's day and age. And number three, not only that, but you're faithful to step into opportunities from God. I think a lot of us step into different kinds of opportunities, whether it be career, social opportunities, travel opportunities. I wonder when's the last time that we cared to step into an opportunity that God presented before us. And so that's what we learned last week. Now today, we're going to carry on. And we're going to go over two chapters. And I promise you, I distilled it as best as I can. We're going to look at chapters 2 and 3. And it is a rich, rich portion of the story. And if last week the question was, who does God use to bring about renewal? Today, we're going to see another side of that question, which is, how does God go about renewing and rebuilding? In the case of Nehemiah, in that context, the walls of Jerusalem. But not just in that context, but also today, how does God go about using those kinds of people to renew and to rebuild, if I can use this language and you'll hear it throughout the message, our walls, our walls in our lives, our walls in our hearts, our walls in our families, our walls in our marriages, and particularly for our church, the walls of our church. So if you know me, we're going to dive straight in. When I preach through a story, I love to preach and journey through the story instead of giving you the whole picture early on. And so instead of reading it all at once, because you might be like, oh my goodness, it's so long. My hope is we're going to journey through it, and I'm going to highlight certain significant parts of the text and the story. But I will give you the three main ideas we're looking through and looking for as we go through it. And the three things we're looking at in the sense of God using to rebuild and renew his people are number one. We're going to see that God, he looks for and uses prayerful preparation. If you're a note taker. Prayerful preparation. Number two, and they're all peace. Hey, I didn't do this on purpose. I'm not a PPPV guy, but I ended up thinking that way. Number two, God uses personal ownership. Personal ownership. And lastly, God uses passionate people. Prayerful preparation, personal ownership, and passionate people. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, whether on your phone or it's going to be on the screen behind me too. Open to Nehemiah 2. And again, 
Bible in hand, because I'm going to be going in and out of Scripture, in and out of the text, and just to prove that I'm not making this up, but it's coming from the Word of God. So open to Nehemiah 2. And as you're turning there, again, where are we picking up? We're picking up where we left off, which is last week, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. He has this burden. He has this desire to do something about the walls in Jerusalem, but we don't know what he's going to do or when he's going to do it. And that's where we pick up. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1, we pick up with the initial heading of prayerful preparation. Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, let's pause there. Now, in the month of Nisan, why include that detail? It's so random, seemingly insignificant. If you remember in chapter 1, it starts the story by saying when Nehemiah receives the news of Jerusalem's broken walls, it makes it a point to say it was in the month of Kislev. Now, obviously, we don't use this language, right? When someone's birthday comes up, you're like, I was born in Kislev. Nobody says that. Or I was born in Nissan, right? We think of a car. We don't think of a month. So to tell you what's going on here, the month of Kislev is around November in our calendar. And the story doesn't pick up and progress. In other words, Nehemiah, there's no functional action from that burden until the month of Nissan, which is March. So it starts in November, he gets the burden. Nothing happens till March. This is significant because it implies Four months have passed, and the only thing you can deduce that has been happening in those four months, that all Nehemiah is doing is he's prayerfully and patiently praying and waiting. That's all. There's this burden in his heart, and for four months, all he does is pray and prepare. Now, I'm going to throw a lot of nuggets because we've got to move a little quickly, but please don't miss them. What we learned from this small detail is that renewal in our lives... Or in the life of the church, oftentimes, it requires prayer, obviously, but it also requires patience. It does not happen overnight. And only when we live in an instant noodle culture, instant everything, instant pot, instant car wash, instant Venmo, instant. So when we pray, we think we want results. Nothing happens for four months. And some of you guys are in a season of waiting. And what you need is not to pray harder, it's to be patient. Impatience plagues the Christian today. Whether it's a burden that God has placed in your heart regarding your marriage. Why does my marriage feel like we're so stuck? God, how come you're not answering my prayer? Or your career. God, I'm so discontent with my career. It's clearly not a good place to be. Or maybe even the church. Our church said we're going to do this and that. Spend a whole week and nothing has changed. What is this blasphemy? We need to be prayerful but also patient for God to move. And that's where, when I look at our church, I'm personally a big believer that some of the most meaningful and precious times, and we talk about all this time as pastors, was when we paused and took time to pray before any decision we made. Whether it's installing a new leader, moving to a new building, we always took time to pray. And if I can preview, that's something that we're going to do again. We're going to take time to pray. And it's going to teach us that sometimes you have to be patient you don't want to jump the gun. And so in Nehemiah's case, four months of patience and prayer, and then God opens a window. God opens a window. And can I tell you, prayer is practical. I've been struggling with this. Prayer seems like a divorce from real life, doesn't it? It's like there's real life, and then there's like your spiritual thing you have to do. No, no, no. Prayer is 100% practical if you're patient enough to wait on God. God will open up windows. So in verse 1 and 2, in the month of Nisan, four months later, something happens. When wine was before him... I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Because, again, he's the cupbearer. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. The king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So, again, Nehemiah, he had a specific role. And one of the things I want to emphasize and highlight that Nehemiah is not a pastor. He's not even a priest. He is literally an administrator. He is a layperson. So if anything, this applies more to everyone's audience than it does to me or Pastor Tom. And a cupbearer, if you didn't know, they were always in close vicinity with the king because they were not only the food and wine selector, but they were the taster. I don't know if you ever watched those medieval dramas or movies, but the king, the only way a king could effectively be assassinated because they were so well guarded was if you poisoned their food. So why do they do? They have a cupbearer who would always taste or drink first to ensure that it's safe for the king to do. So that's who Nehemiah was. And naturally, it would be someone of integrity, someone they could trust. If you could turn and flip a cupbearer, you can literally bring down a kingdom. And so not only were they the taster, but they were always in close proximity. And one of the unspoken rules for a cupbearer is you always have to be happy. You always have to be happy in the presence of the king. This is total side note. 
you know, uh, it's been three weeks since we've gathered. And every time we praise, I look at the audience. And I don't know if it's because we're professionals at having half our face be absolutely stoic and the bottom is joyful. Imagine if that rule applied to us as Christians. You should not be stoic or somber in the presence of the king. We'd all be judged to the ground. Total side note. I thought about it. I was like, wow. I wonder if there's any more of a depressive face we have during the week than we're praising the king of kings. It almost, I felt like, praise forever to the king of kings. And people are like, like whoa, how, how would God feel about that? Total side note. I just felt the spirit like convicting me and our church by extension like, hey, if you're going to come to praise the Lord, like think about that a little bit. So that's Nehemiah. You can't be sad in the presence of the king. So they would always be happy. They would always be joyful. But clearly, Nehemiah, for the first time ever, his burden takes him to a point where he cannot hide the sadness on his face. And the king takes notice and says, Nehemiah, cupbearer, what's going on? Don't fake or pretend. It's clearly that something is sad. You're not well. And Nehemiah becomes afraid. Why? Because number one, the king literally could have ended his life right there. And they have before. Because he broke the rule. But secondly, it's because Nehemiah, it's almost as if he's been waiting for this moment and he knows he's about to say something that could potentially get him killed. Now, if you want a kind of glimpse of what that kind of feeling is, it reminds me of a situation that maybe some of us have faced where imagine you have a, an uncomfortable burden or a request that you have to bring up with your boss or your spouse or, or, or maybe a, a friend that you have. Maybe it's a, a hurt that you've been harboring and you know that, man, one day I'm going to have to bring it up. Or it's a raise that you feel like you deserve. And after a year, you're like, I'm finally going to bring it up to my boss. It's that kind of feeling. You know, that feeling of dread that I don't know how this is going to be received, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. So what's Nehemiah's burden? What is it that gripped to the point that it's leaking into his expression of sadness? Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever, which was a common phrase they would say. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah says, oh great king, how can I not be sad when my father's land is destroyed and it remains unprotected and vulnerable? My homeland is in ruins. Now Nehemiah is a sharp, shrewd, winsome man. Notice he doesn't say the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. He doesn't say that. He says, my father, the place of my father's graves. Now, this is wise because what Nehemiah is doing, which you can't catch at first glimpse, he's speaking his burden in a way that the king can understand and sympathize with. Here's why. Number one, familial ties were of utmost and supreme importance in ancient Near Eastern cultures. When you talk about family and legacy, they get it. And all the more for kings, ancient kings, if you study history, they were extra sensitive about the idea of burial and memorial. That's why if you read even in Egyptian culture, the pharaohs, they would always make a grand deal of where am I going to be buried? Where's my memorial going to be? The idea that you don't get a proper burial was, it was anathema. You couldn't even think about that back in the day. And Nehemiah knows that. So he talks about the idea of a place of my father's graves. What a weird way to say Jerusalem. Why not just say Jerusalem? Secondly, not only that, Nehemiah was aware the Persian kingdom, which was ruling at the time, they actually still saw Jer Jerusalem as a city of potential opposition. They saw it as potential opposition. So Nehemiah, what he's doing is, yes, he's being honest about his burden, but he's sharing it in a manner that the king can sympathize with and he can understand. Now, why is that significant? What we see from this is a lot of times, it's not that we don't have burdens, but I think we need to know wisely, simply sharing or expressing your burden, it's not sufficient to bring about renewal. It's not. You need to take the time to pray and process it in a manner that is thought out, that is translatable and understandable when you do share it. Isn't this like marriage counseling 101? Oh, but this is how I feel. I know that's how you feel, but they're not getting that. So what do you have to do? Pray, process, don't change your burden, but be wise about how it comes out. And what does that tell us about Nehemiah? Where did this come from, this winsome way of sharing it? He's been praying and preparing for four months, that's why. He's been awaiting this opportunity. In verse 4, so the king says, I get it, I share your burden, 
what are you requesting? So the king, understanding Nehemiah's sadness, asks him this very dangerous question. I'm the king of Persia. What do you want? Now, I heard another pastor regarding this first charity. I thought it was powerful. Okay, let's turn it to us now. If you were given a blank check, okay, like Nehemiah was by a wealthy, powerful, and authoritative king. Okay, so let's say there's a back room over there, and we did a lottery, and I was like, hey, you in the audience, seat number four. And you're like, woo, that's me, right? I was like, go to that back room. There is a king there, the king of Orange County. He has all the money in the world. When you come out the other side of that room, something's going to change because he's going to ask you, whatever you want, I will do. Or imagine Elon Musk became a member of our church, right? Like we did membership and it's Elon Musk. Oh my gosh, hey Elon, how are you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, right? And I'm like, hey, how'd you come to our church? He's like, hey, there's this guy. There's this guy named Bob. He's on the welcoming team. He made me feel really welcome. So you know what I want to do? I want to give him a blank check. Give this blank check to Bob. Tell me, if you had that in your hands and you walked in that room, what would change when you walk out? What would change? What would be different as a result of you filling out that blank check? I think knowing us, for a lot of us, you know what would change? Number one, your job would change. Oh, blank check. Give me a better job. Better work-life balance. I want to join tech. Get me a job at Netflix, please. I hate my job. Or two, financial status. Better yet, I don't even want to work. <laughs> Give me better pay. I want money. Three, living situation. Housing sucks. Give me a really nice house that has amazing appreciating value. Because if I want to sell, I could sell or I could just live here. Or at least a bigger house to live in. Or four, just anything in your life. Something in your life would change, would it not? As a result of you walking out of that room, your plans would progress. Your burdens would be resolved. Here's the common denominator in all of that. It's you, 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 you. Something for you will change. Why? Because your biggest burden is you. That's why. Your burdens reveal your idols, your comfort, your security, your reputation, your status. But as we learned last week, God used Nehemiah because he cared not ultimately for his own desires, but about God's desires. Do you know how powerful a blank check in someone who cares about the kingdom is? Satan does not care if you spend money on yourself. He will give you the world so long as you don't care outside of your own burdens. So Nehemiah responds in verse 4. What are you requesting? Take note of what he does. He doesn't say, king, here's what I want. He says, so I pray to God. I've been wrestling with that. He prays. Now let me clarify, okay. It's not as if the king asks him, Nehemiah, what do you want? And he says, hold up, king, father in heaven. No, 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 that's not what's going on here. In real time, in the moment, he does what a lot of ancient Christians practice, which is what's called a breath prayer. Breath prayer. Something that I hope you can pick up if you've never heard of it. If you've never heard of what a breath prayer is, it's basically what it sounds like. It is a quick prayer you offer up to God that is short enough to be said in one breath. In one breath. So I would imagine Nehemiah probably said something like, if the king was like, what do you want? He probably said, Lord, give me strength right now. Or Father, help me. Or give me the words to say. Breath prayers only come out when you've actually been praying regularly. And whatever he prayed, the takeaway is Nehemiah clearly was always in prayer. He was always consulting God in all of life, especially in his decisions. We grew up in a more um, performative culture, particularly being Asian. Let me tell you this. Long prayers are great. They are not impressive to God. They're not. Your lengthy prayers mean nothing if it's just babble. But one sentence breath prayer can be just as effective if your heart means it. So verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, not Jerusalem, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So he steps into the opportunity and says, king, I have this burden. My father's graves, homeland, the walls are down. And so remember, the idea that's been connecting this entire first portion is that what does God use to bring rebuilding and renewal? Prayerful, but not just prayerful, preparation. Notice Nehemiah doesn't just go, I have a burden, let me go and I'll figure it out. Look at verse 7 and 8, how specific he is. And the king said to him, well, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And it pleased the king because I, I had given him a time. So he told him, oh, this is how long I'm going to be gone. And I said to the king, if it pleases you, let letters be given to the governors of the province, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may make timber to make beams for the gate, for the wall of the city. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. 
Nehemiah, for four months, he had not just prayed, but he had prayerfully prepared. He had a plan. Now, let me give you a quick illustration to kind of break us from just being in the text. Iron Man 1, what started the entire Marvel Universe. There's a scene in there that reminds me of this. If, you don't, if you've never seen Iron Man 1, basically the most famous scene is Tony Stark gets captured by these kind of terrorists. They throw him in a cave. And in the cave, he's sitting there. And anyone in a cave, what are you thinking? How am I going to get out? He doesn't just sit there and say, well, I can't wait one day if the, the door might open. You know what he does? He gets to work. He anticipates the day when their opportunity will be there. But he starts using his resources, using his expertise, coming up with the plan. If they come in with guns, I'm going to have this kind of armor. And so that entire scene about he's not just sitting around, but he is planning and preparing for his escape, thinking through exactly what needs to be done so that when the opportunity comes, he is prepared. He is ready. What Nehemiah shows is that prayerfulness needs to go hand in hand with preparation and planning. When it comes to renewal or rebuilding, God placed the burden of Jerusalem's broken walls in Nehemiah's heart. And he didn't just pray, oh, God, that's terrible. Do something about it. If God wanted to do something about it, he would have done something about it. He's giving you the burden because he wants you to do something about it. Does that ever cross your mind? It should. So he gives him the burden. And so Nehemiah prays and begins to pray, Lord, if this burden has been given to you by me, either take it away if it's not of you or if it stays, give me the intentionality to now go and do something about it from the given position and circumstance that I'm in. So when the king, saw, king says, how long will you be gone? Do you need anything? Nehemiah tells me exactly how long I'm going to be gone. And he says, hey, I need protective letters as I travel. So can you get protection for me to all these governors? He names specific people and materials, and the king gives it to him. And Nehemiah says, in the day, even though I prepared, it's the good hand of the Lord. I prepared, I pray, but God, it's his favor. He brought this upon me. Shifting gears a little, church, uh, some of you, probably most of you, have some sort of broken wall in your life right now. It might be that you're out of a job and you let go recently. Some of us have relational walls that are broken, strained marriage family troubles, or conflict, or friends, and others of you, probably all of us, your spiritual walls are rubble. They're broken down. You feel apathetic. You feel distant from God, and you want to renew your intimacy with God. The first step towards rebuilding those walls, as he's from the text, is yes, of course, be prayerful. And a lot of us already fail there. But also, practically, in your prayer, prepare and have a plan in your prayerfulness. Rebuilding takes work. It takes planning. It requires you to count the cost. Prayer is not just a magic bullet or it's a way to communicate and a way to consult with the true and living God to orient your heart and your plans to be prepared for however and whenever God chooses to provide an opportunity for you to rebuild. For you to offer breath prayers when you're going to make a big decision or if you're not sure what direction to take. The predicament for some of us is some of us, you plan a lot, but you don't pray. Others of us, you pray a lot, but you don't plan. Others of us, you pray and you plan, but you're not patient. You need all three. That's what we learned from Nehemiah. And God uses that to bring about renewal. The second thing God uses is personal ownership. Personal ownership. Last week, Pastor Tommy shared how almost every revival, if you trace it back, it begins with one person or maybe a few people. And if you trace the origin of big revivals or renewing God's people, it does usually begin with one person. 100% affirm that. But if I could kind of expand and add my own flavor to that, I would also include revival happens when someone serious about God sees a problem or an issue regarding God and his church and his kingdom and embraces it not just as a problem, but embraces it as my problem, as my issue. In other words, I think revival, it's birthed out of ownership. And we're going to see that in Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah, he could have just sent resources and money to Jerusalem. He had the power to do that. Or he could have sent servants to deliver instructions. Hey, I know exactly what needs to be done. I'm a cupbearer. And he could have stayed in the comfort of the king's presence. And he could have told himself, hey, I did what I could to help my father's grave. And, uh, you know, what can I do? I did what I could. What does he do? Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He says, 
I'm going myself. I'm going to see with my own eyes. Sure, I heard a report, but I got to experience it. I got to take it in for myself. And he doesn't open his mouth and blah, 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 like I'm going to do these great things. He's quiet and he goes with his desire to fully embrace the situation and assess it with his own eyes and his own heart. And look at the extent that he does that in verse 13. I went out by the night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. By the way, I'm going to talk about that gate later. What a funny gate, right? Dung gate. It just stuck with me. I was like, i got to look this up. And it's an interesting one. And expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that hadn't been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for even the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Nehemiah makes it a point to inspect to survey the extent of the damage and the vulnerability of Jerusalem. In some portions, he realizes that the damage is so bad and the rubble is so great that he can't even pass through by foot or by animal. And as he inspects the situation of the walls, it's clear that his ownership and concerns and care to rebuild it only grows. Because he gets to a point where he feels convicted to finally bring it up to the people of Jerusalem. There's something about seeing it yourself that does something to the human heart. Everyone hears about missions. Everyone hears about it. Everyone hears about how people are lost. Why do you think it's the people who actually go and experience it that are changed? It's ownership. It's not, it's not just the lost person. It's this person that you met. It's this person that you build relationship with. It's an embodied experience that Nehemiah experiences. Now I want to pause and camp out on this, this picture of surveying and inspecting the walls, right? Because I think it's a very visceral image. Remember, it's not as if the walls of Jerusalem had fallen recently. Okay, it's not that this happened last week or even last month, even last year. It had fallen for a while now. So it's been burned down and broken for years. And what ended up happening is the people of Jerusalem, they just got used to living that way. They just got used to it. They knew the walls were broken. They knew they were vulnerable, but they got used to it. Even though it's not good for their communal, their cultural, their spiritual, and their physical well-being individually and corporately. It was only because Nehemiah had a burden for the glory of God in the health of the city that he personally took the time to inspect and assess the walls in the situation. In a similar way, all of you naturally survey and inspect the walls of your lives. If you have a burden for it. Everybody does that. A silly example recently, the summertime is a time for ants. I hate ants. My wife hates ants. We're training and discipling our son Ezra to hate ants, right? So it's hot. The ants are looking for food. And so when ants started coming in and infiltrating, the burden of wanting to get rid of these ants, it like drove a fire in me where I started to literally inspect the perimeter of our home, looking for all these holes they could come through. I researched how to fortify our house and get these protective things that would be a long-term solution. Because why? I had a burden to protect my family from ants, to stay ant-free. Now here's the thing. As much as I don't like ants, I would never do that for someone else's house. I wouldn't. If I went to your house and there was an ant problem, I'd be like, oh, ants. That's it. Or like, maybe you should use RAID. And I know RAID's not a long-term solution. But I don't want to take the time to explain to you this crazy other method that you're going to go, right? Talk to me after if you want to know. But anyways, right? So here's the thing. It's not the ants that lead me to inspect the walls. It's the fact that the ants are entering my house and affecting my family. That drives me to fortify my walls. It's an ownership issue, is it not? You're not going to care nearly as much as the ants in my house, but your house, oh my goodness, inspect the walls. So what are some walls that you naturally seek to fortify and inspect? Knowing our congregation, knowing my own heart, I think some common ones will be, you always inspect the walls of your financial well-being, don't you? I'm pretty sure most of you guys in your calendar go over budget, Check your, check your bills, make sure you're paying them on time, look up retirement, check your, you know, all your, your, your resources and financial wealth. Nobody teaches you to do that. Why? You do that because you have a burden for that. Or some of you guys, you're always checking the walls of your reputation. What do people think about me? What are people saying about me? Oh, that person looked at me weird. They don't teach you to do that. Or your comfort. How can I make be more comfortable? How can we do this? Two weeks ago, our AC was broken. Some of us were like, it's hot. Others of you are like, I'll never come to this church again, right? Something bigger is going on there. Your social media presence. How come this person didn't like that post? How come this person liked that post? How come I'm not getting as many likes? How come, you know, 
what's, what's going on there? You're inspecting the walls of your Instagram and your social media or your children. Hedging your children. I don't want that guy touching that person. I don't want this person hugging my child. What's going on there? It's yours. That's why you care. But I wonder, do you care to inspect the walls of your holiness? If there are sinful tendencies and vulnerabilities in your life that Satan can easily infiltrate and get a stronghold, do you care that those are broken down? Or the walls of your relationships to see, man, my little barrier of relationship is tiny. I love five people and the reason I love them is because they love me. And you have no ounce outside your comfort zone to love your neighbors or other members of the church. Or do you care that our church is worshiping in spirit and truth? And so maybe that's why the spirit impressed that upon my heart today. I care. I care that 99% of us look like we don't want to be here and we're singing praise to the king of kings. I legitimately felt like you shouldn't sing then. Like get right with God first. Like you wouldn't do that to any other situation. Like a job interview, at least you'll fake it, right? Do you care though? Do you care that our church is moving towards being on mission together to obey the Great Commission, which is why the church should exist? Or are you content so long as the AC is on, you have your set group of friends, and nobody bothers you? Is that all you care about? If the only walls you care about and the only ones you inspect are your own, we need to repent. Simple as that. The call of the Christian is simple. You need to die to yourself. That's what it says. That's biblical. I'm not making that up. You need to die to your own personal dreams, your own fleshly desires, to embrace an altogether new burden, a godly one, a kingdom-driven one, and the ownership now, albeit imperfectly, transfers from just caring about my stuff to now God's stuff. Just my home to God's home. So Nehemiah inspects, surveys, assesses, and he gets burdened enough. And when you get burdened enough, I guarantee you if it is of God, you're going to do something about it and you're going to get other people around you to do something about it. That's what Nehemiah does. And that's what I'm kind of doing today, right? Verse 17, then I said to them, to the people, after inspecting, after growing a personal ownership, he says, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with his gates burned. Come, let us Build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. This is Nehemiah's rally cry to his people to join him in rebuilding. It's essentially a recruitment speech. That's what it is. And his ownership is bleeding out because even though he himself is technically a foreigner. Remember, he, he didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He, he wasn't familiar with the area. He wasn't born there. He lived all his life outside of Jerusalem. But he says what? The trouble that we are in. Let us build the wall. He doesn't see himself as some sort of outside help or some sort of advisor to Jerusalem that's better or above what's going on. But his burden for God's glory and the things of God makes him cry out, let us build so that we may no longer suffer derision. I will say it's been a while since I've been personally deeply burdened when I prepared a sermon going over a text. I think, and the pastoral staff knows this, I've been praying for them to pray for me. I told them, I feel like I have a sermon block. I told them that. You see, the Sam of old, maybe five years ago, before life hit me, I would like convict, be so convicted and be like, God, I believe this, right? Maybe like a lot of you, I think we're at a stage, maybe even our church, the, the practicality of the faith has been really on my mind. It's been, I've been wrestling with it. Like the burdens of scripture. And I think it's only given by God and spirit. Maybe I got prayed for extra hard because Nehemiah's pain, I got a little bit of a glimpse of it. And here was Nehemiah's pain. His pain was that God's people. And the city that houses the temple and worship of God's name and reflects the glory of God is a mockery. That was his pain. People are making fun of God. They look at it like irrelevant, useless. It lies unprotected, vulnerable. And Nehemiah with every ounce of his energy says, this is not okay. Let's do something about this. God will be with us. He's been with me up till now. Now I'm going to slightly shift gears and intentionally use the idea of rebuilding now to refer primarily to our church. So particularly if you're a member, I hope you would perk up. Even if you're not, maybe you can get a glimpse of what it takes to build a true church of God. 
Now, I'm definitely not saying that our pastoral staff, like we're a bunch of Nehemiahs, okay? We have a lot, a lot of work to do. But I will say this, okay? As someone who's been a pastor here for some time and who knows the pastoral staff, can I at first tell you, I promise we're not shady. <laughs> we're not. We're not doing this because we get a lot of money, because we're trying to establish some sort of walls of, like, reputation. Pastors, we talked about this the other day, pastors are the most unpopular job to do right now. And I tell you, if the Lord had not led me in the way and the season that he did to ministry, I would easily be joining something else right now. And I wrestle with this because why not? Why not just do another job? You get more money, you get more security, more time with family. Why not? I could. So we're not shady. I promise you that. We try our best. I will tell you, we regularly pray. We regularly prepare. And we regularly plan for our church to be built up for the glory of God. We do. Not only that, I can tell you that our staff personally cares and has ownership about how our church is doing. And unfortunately, I can't say that for all pastors. I talk to them. And it's not uncommon for Pastor Tom and I, right, our wives can attest to this at midnight or 1 a.m. to send a message about church. Maybe work-life balance, yeah, but what can you do? Ownership bleeds out. And it's literally we're burdened by someone in the church or something in the church. It could be little as, hey, I think we might need more snacks on Sunday. Who thinks like that unless you're burdened? Or hey, that new person, man, I really noticed they were just by themselves in the corner. Like, I don't think that's okay. Let's do something about that. And I will say that even though we are blessed to be regathered in worship, we have a lot of building and rebuilding to do as a church. Rebuilding in the sense that we are coming out of COVID, and, but also building in general overall considering that we're technically a relatively young church. If you're visiting or if you're new and you don't kind of know the history of our church, we're basically a replant. In fact, we haven't even officially had our, our formal, that's why we use language like, oh, I'm so excited for our first members meeting. Like, what is going on there? It's because we're essentially a new church and we have a lot of room to establish culture and identity. And one of the phrases our pastoral staff started using recently in light of this series is we are intentionally taking time to inspect and survey the quote-unquote walls of our church. Everything from how does welcoming feel? What does the culture feel like? Uh, what is education? What room are they meeting in? Hey, what's the best way for moms to go? Is there an equal path there? It's really sunny here. We wouldn't want people to feel hot. To the sound. Hey, it sounds kind of fuzzy. Or it was really hard to listen to. To the praise. To the hospitality. To the snacks. In fact, this morning, 9.30, all of us came and really just walked around the campus. Why? Because we're surveying the walls. Nobody told us to do that. We care. And as we've been sharing, as we survey the walls that need to be built and strengthened, just this morning, I cannot help but echo Nehemiah and say, come, let's build together. And the response Nehemiah gets brings chills to my bones. If I gave that recruitment call in a members meeting and I got this response, my clothes would fly off and I would just fly to heaven. <laughs> Look at verse 18. And they said, simple. Let us rise up and build. Holy moly. Amazing. Not, well, what, how long is it going to take? What are the protections and are you shady, right? <laughs> I get it. And I'm going to address that later. But let us rise up and build. They caught the vision. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And this leads to the last point. God uses prayer preparation, personal ownership, and finally passionate people to bring about renewal and building. Please don't lose me. Who is responsible to build up the church? What kinds of people are most equipped to build up the body of Christ? I will argue, and I'm, we're convicted this more than ever. We talk about all this time. It's not the gifted people or the competent people. It is the passionate people. And by passionate, I mean that those who care. Those who care to not do everything, but those who care to do something. That's what passion does to people. Passion makes you want to do something, even if it's picking up a piece of trash, so that you feel a sense of ownership at the walls that are being built up as that church. That is passion. Chapter 3, it's all about the personnel involved in the rebuilding of the wall. And I know most people see this as a throwaway chapter. I would have skipped it, but the Lord prevented me because they're so rich. I fell in love with this chapter, and I think it's exactly what our church needs to hear in this season. And obviously, I can't go over the whole chapter because you would kill me, but let's draw us a couple insights, right? I'm just going to read the first four verses to tell you what the whole chapter is like. It reads, then, after he said, come, let us build together, 
Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests. They built the sheep gate. They consecrated, set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built next to them. Zachary, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakal, is repaired. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Mishabal, repaired. I contemplated reading the whole thing because it sends a message. That's literally how the whole chapter goes. It continues in the manner of seeing the names of those involved, who they were, what their profession was, which part of the wall they helped build and rebuild, and the beautiful part of it, and next to them, and next to them, next to them. Arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, these people are collectively doing that. Because what does it show? To build a wall that is worthy of the Lord, it requires everyone. That's what it means. It requires everyone. Definitely Nehemiah couldn't have done it by himself. I'll tell you this. Pastor Tom, Shim, and I, we were like vision casting for the campus and I was so deflated because I was like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Now, quick snippets. What do we learn from this chapter when it comes to who God uses then to bring renewal and build his church? It's not what you think it is. Number one, in this list, there are people from all kinds of professions. There are clergy and lay, priests, pastors, and regular people. All social classes and social statuses. All careers. Not only that, and the slides you show behind me, they're underlined. They're not only those people, but there's both men and women, parents and children building together. One of the most beautiful parts of this is it says, Halohesh, ruler of half the district, so a man of some rapport, repaired, he and his daughters. Awesome. No one is excluded. There's a quote from a commentator who writes, Vigo Olsen, who helped rebuild 10,000 houses in war ravaged Bangladesh in 72, Reading this chapter derived unexpected inspiration from reading a chapter ordinarily considered one of the least interesting. He writes, quote, I was struck that no expert builders were listed in the Holy Land Brigade. There were priests, priest helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, and women, but no expert builders or competitors were named. How do you build a wall with no wall builders? It makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. So clearly it's not about competency. Number three, not only that, everyone did what they could where they could. If you read the list, it says some people took part in a grand part of the wall. Other people just fixed the part in front of the house. That's it. Literally just, just in front of the house, they did that part. A, sh a shade of paint. And it clearly wasn't about the individual task. You know why? If it was about the individual task, I told you about this. The Dungate people would have never made it. Do you know what the Dungate is? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's where all the dung goes. It's the dumpster. It's the trash people of the church. Imagine all the diapers, all the poo, somebody throws up, the dungate. And you don't want to volunteer for the dungate? That's what it is. So if it's about the task, they wouldn't have made it. It wasn't about the task, it was about the vision to rebuild the wall. I'll take out trash, I'll smell garbage, not because I love garbage, we gotta build the wall. Which leads to number five, and this is kind of the more tragic side, but it's a sober side. There will always be people who see themselves as above the work that is being done. And can I exhort you, try not to be one of them. Look at verse five. Next to them the tailkites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. How sad is it that Nehemiah has to say, as great as the task was, some people saw it as, man, for me to do that means I'm stooping. To build up the community and the, the walls of the Lord, I would have to stoop down. And I'm not going to do that. There will always be those people. Which leads to the final point. No one is under or overqualified to take part in building God's kingdom. The prerequisite is not gifting. Although God gives you gifts, it's passion. It's not competency. It's conviction. And it's not even ability primarily. It's your availability. Cliche as it is, that's what it is. How were a group of ragtag blue-collar people who knew nothing about building a wall able to band together and get it done? They had a shared passion, a common goal. They spoke a common language. And this morning, as I thought about it, I had this portion later. I was like, how are we going to get it done? And I think the Lord brought about encouragement to my heart. Because even in this season of rebuilding, there's a lot of discouraging things going on. But can I shout out without naming some people in our church? There's a couple in our church. We needed help. And we say, hey, can you guys help oversee this ministry? And let me tell you, it is the opposite of who they are as people. Total opposite. If it was about gifting and competency, it would almost be uh, evil to ask these people to do it. You know what they said? That's not my strength, but I would love to take part. 
we'll do what we can. There's a, there's a father of our church. I know this brother well. Not many of you do because he's low-key. Two young, young kids, which is probably the golden excuse in this day and age. I have not one but two kids, young. It's like, please, <laughs> fast, fast, whatever you want. He stays the latest and quietly cleans up everything. The trash you leave, the, the tablecloths, the canopies where people are like, I got to go to the source, I'm out of here. And Shim tells me all the time, dude, this guy, he's always the last one here. His babies are like, you know, just they're still there. But I think the family, just, they're just gangster like that. Or Nursey and CM. It always breaks my heart when I'm like, hey, how is the message, right? They're like, oh, sorry, I was like watching the kids. Uh, there's a sister in here. You, might not, you guys might know who she is. I haven't witnessed this myself, but I've heard legends of it. Her, her role is to take meltdown babies and hold them. <laughs> what a role. I'd rather do Dungate than do that. But that's her role. Meltdown babies. Why? So moms can worship. There's another brother. This pulpit. Last week, Pastor Tom was preaching. He said, hey, the pulpit, we would never know. But he said, hey, that pulpit looks like it gives a tune-up. Let me go tune it up. We did not ask this brother and say, hey, can you tune up this? No, no, no. I didn't even know he does woodwork. But he's just like, hey, I, I kind of want to help build that up. Let me, let, me, let me put some work into that. The funny part is I don't know the difference, but I, it's different, right? I believe by the glory of God that his efforts have made it better. Maybe I'm preaching with more oomph because there's something, I don't know, right? Or he, this one I'll name, Shim. Shim didn't go to seminary to be a mechanic, guys. You know he's had more visits to the mechanic to help our trailer and to help the car that brings the trailer than he probably has the opportunity to preach. He hasn't even preached in person yet. For all we know, he could have been in Zambia this whole time preaching through Zoom, right? Because we've only seen it virtually. He came to my house this morning at 7.45 a.m. to pick up the car. You know why? Because he needed a safe neighbor to park. So he parked it at my place. He parked it, came to get it, take it all the way to the trailer park, take it all the way back. And he has an unnamed group of faithful volunteers who are here two hours before anyone gets here. And literally an hour ago, the Lord encouraged me. We're praying in the back. And I see a member who I've never seen before. And she's, she's newer. And I'm like, what's she doing here? And I find out. She signed up to serve in what many would consider a, a partial dungate of a ministry. That's why no one signs up for it. She doesn't know that many people. She just wants to help build. If the Tower of Babel in Genesis tells us anything, it shows when a group of people speak the same language and they have a common goal, they can build something amazing. All Satan has to do is change the language. We're not on the same page. We're not after the same thing. And church, that's my deepest desire and prayer for us, to speak the same language of the kingdom, to share the same passions of glorifying God, for, to care that when people come to church, they experience the love of Christ just by us doing our part. And we all have a part to play. Because if there's any gap or compromised portion of a wall, where do you think the enemy is going to attack? If 90% of my home is fortified against ants, ants, as as, as Stupid as they might be, they will go to the 10%. That's just how it works. That's what a wall is. The enemy finds the weakness. They will infiltrate the weakness. So it's especially the parts of the church that we think are not important that needs the most big fortification. And the beauty and the mystery of the church is the building blocks of the church. It's not brick or steel, but the Bible is clear. It's the people of God being built together as spiritual stones. Bound together in identity and mission, not by gifts or abilities, but shared passion and shared conviction in Jesus. Quick application now close. And I know it's going a little bit longer, so I apologize, right? I won't be here next week, so don't worry. If you're new, you can come next week. It'll be better, right? The people of God and the church will not be built up by apathetic people. And I think a lot of you guys are apathetic, and I get it. Or people who just attend. It's not going to work that way. God and his church need you. Now, obviously, the most silly application, and I promised this wasn't it, but I noticed, oh, we've been doing volunteers. It, we didn't plan it that way, but that's a clear application, right? So you can obviously sign up, but maybe you're weary, and I get it. Some of you are like, maybe some of you are weary or you've been weary. I'm not saying, hey, therefore, just grind. No, I'm saying just don't check out. You can still paint the portion in front of you. Stay at home, heal up, rest, but paint. Or young moms, 
You know what's a big uh, encouragement is Pastor Tom, when we talk to young moms, they say, I want to be involved. I just don't know how. And I would say, don't be burdened that you can't do these great things. Just talk to that new mom sitting next to you, right in front of your house. That's all you have to do. And most importantly, parents, disciple our children in a way that they understand that serving God and his church, it is a worthy endeavor to give their time and energy to. And you see, the greatest peril, I think, from this text in our church is the fact that I think Nehemiah, he was wrestling with addressing a group of people who were probably struggling with being jaded. And here's why. And I have a couple specific people in mind. I promise not individual, but a group of people. It wasn't the first rebuilding effort for Jerusalem. There had been previous attempts to build the wall. But every time, the reason they got jaded is because the building efforts got halted, it got stopped, or it got destroyed by opposition. And I couldn't touch on that next week. Pastor Tom will talk about opposition. But the reality is that's totally understandable. Any genuine effort to renew or rebuild for God will face opposition. And that's where some of the members of our church, I think we can relate to this. I've been a member of this church long enough to say we have faced our fair share of opposition as we've tried to grow, as we try to mature, and as we try to be on mission together. And I'll be the first to say it is discouraging. So I get it if you've been scarred, if you're hurt, or if you're disillusioned by the church, if you're like, I've heard this kind of message before, or maybe you've even seen or been part of other building efforts only to see it crumble, whether at this church or at another church. So for you, when I look in your hearts, your walls of trust, your walls of conviction and vision, your walls of intentionality are rubble, and I get it. They've been burned down. But here's the final encouragement. Nehemiah, again, in the end of the day, is not trying to be Nehemiah. But three things, the one who did it best, prayerfully prepared, personally took ownership, and passionate. For time's sake, I'll give you the answer. It's Christ. Christ prayerfully prepared to come rescue us. Prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Prepared in the plan of salvation since the beginning of time. Personally took ownership of what? Us. Your sins. Their sins are mine. And lastly, is not Easter dubbed Passion Week for a reason? No one is more passionate about us, his glory and our salvation than Christ. And his passion led him to death on a cross. If Jesus can renew dead souls and bring them to life by the power of the gospel, I firmly believe he can rebuild and renew our weary, jaded, and tired souls. So as we close, in this season of regathering, we may continue it, but at least for this season, I'm going to invite the praise team up actually. And we actually believe here at our church that when God's word is preached, it's preached not by our own mouths or our own opinions, but it's the very word of God. So we actually want to take a minute after every sermon in this season at least to give an opportunity and silence to reflect and respond to the word of God. Whatever it might be that's convicting you, whatever it might be that you need to think about if you're not a Christian, just to simply pause, reflect on this past week, what's going on in life. And so if I can lead us in that time, and don't be surprised again in the following weeks if we do this, can we just take a minute, see if you need some direction, are there any walls that are literally broken and burned to the ground in your heart, personally, relationally, in the church? Is your only burden literally yourself? Can we reflect, can we repent, can we pray? Just take a moment and then I'll close for us before our lesson.